You're listening to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 10th, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Creed, Janae, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. On today's program, we feature a very special show related to a criminal complaint to the Hammersmith police station in the United Kingdom of gross negligent manslaughter and serious misconduct in public office in the context of the COVID vaccination program. The complainants claim irrefutable and damning evidence showing and proving the vaccine program is causing harm, injury, and death on a massive scale. The scale of these harms is being deliberately suppressed by the government and the media. Claims are all denied by official health agencies. This attempt to take the case to the police is considered one of the more significant actions taken to move the debate beyond theoretical argument toward real action that allows officials to continue to collect and process the information it gets hold of. We are postponing the usual article summaries this time to get right into the debate as we hear different perspectives on the COVID situation. Phil Highland is a lawyer who founded the group PJH Law in 2002. It is based in Stamford, Lincolnshire, in the United Kingdom. The firm was also a winner in the Law Society Excellence Awards in the category of Excellent Client Service back in 2008. Convinced of the considerable harms associated with the vaccine, Highland's campaign has the ultimate objectives of having the vaccine passport declared unlawful, halting the vaccine rollout to allow a thorough review of all potential serious adverse effects, and, if the police do not take any action, to start private criminal proceedings against those identified as responsible for potentially criminal activity. In the first half hour, Phil Highland will join us to walk us through his approach to rectifying the perils related to the vaccine. Then in our second half hour, we will speak with the renowned Dr. Peter Hotez. He will attempt to present a rebuttal to Highland's claims and refute claims pointing to the lack of safety surrounding the COVID vaccine. We'll start now with my conversation with Phil Highland. Here he is presenting some of the factual evidence he provides to back up his case. We were gathering evidence and looking at an injunction uh, to take out against the Medical Health Regulatory Authority that licenses drugs and medical devices in the UK because the evidence collected suggested that there were statistically significant increases in certain conditions like myocarditis and pericarditis plus there was statistically significant increase in deaths uh, in some male uh, cohorts. I think it was 10% additional deaths post-vax rollout. And I think uh, for women, it was about 8%. Uh, 
increase in number of deaths. And then we had the issue of uh, increase in certain conditions like myocarditis and pericarditis, a lack of information on spontaneous abortions, plus what appeared to be bad batches circulating. And all that put together, when, when we look at what happened in the past, if, if a uh, medicine had caused or could have caused uh, those amounts of adverse events, it would have normally been withdrawn. But with the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, um, there seemed to be at best an indifference by the regulator as to what adverse events were happening. Um, and there didn't seem to be too much enthusiasm for collecting data. Um, and I think we can compare that with how SARS-CoV-2 deaths were treated in that um, any death within 28 days of a positive test was put down as a SARS-CoV-2 death, whereas any death 28 days from vaccination was a subject of complete indifference. So when we looked at it, we, we saw that the bad batch issue was a key issue uh, that the regulator wasn't addressing. But the flip side of that coin is that the regulator hadn't authorised hydrochloroquine and zinc and hadn't authorised ivermectin. Now, um, you can say what you like about those two therapeutics, and there's been a lot said, everything from horse tranquilizer onwards. But what I don't think anyone can dispute, judging by the data collected at Vigi Access, which is World Health Organization database, I don't think anyone can dispute that uh, those drugs or therapeutics or medicines are safe. Um, I, I don't think anyone can dispute that. Well, so, actually, there are a lot of experts uh, in the in the uh, who, who appear in the mainstream media who do. They'll say that the that the hydrochloroquine doesn't work, and that with ivermectin, uh, that, that these things can be actually uh, uh, deadly for uh, or so. So they they, they say they're going to continue doing tests, but so far it's it's not proven. I mean, what? what yeah, I, I I mean, what what I tend to the go by is official figures. And the World Health Organization collate data on safety and uh, the data collated on HCQ, zinc, has been collated since 1968. And the data on ivermectin from about 1994. And both drugs or medicines have got a very good safety record. Um, I don't think that's in dispute. I think what's in dispute is whether they work. But on the flip side of that, we've got a vaccine where the safety doesn't look to be particularly good. And we've also, according to the figures, got a vaccine that doesn't appear to work as advertised. Um, so when we look at, and, and if we're going back to last December, Public Health Scotland had got some figures out 
which they pair 100,000 of the vaxxed population against 100,000 of the unvaxxed population, there is a far higher incidence of COVID and death in the vaccinated population. And that increase was um, statistically significant. I think off the top of my head, it was about 1.5, 100,000 in the unvaccinated. And depending on how many boosters you'd had, it went up to about 3.4 per 100,000 if you've had four boosters. So I think when you look side by side, um, the vaccine has got safety and efficacy issues. Uh, the alternatives don't really have safety issues. Uh, there's fierce debate as to whether they, those uh, ivermectin, HCQ and zinc work. But as part of the Metropolitan Police complaint, we have gathered evidence from uh, clinicians who had used uh, these HCQ and ivermectin in clinic with, with good uh, results. So what, what we went into the um, Met Police for uh, on the 20th of December, the serious misconduct in public office but it, re it really covered the whole gamut of the COVID response, the, false, the tests that weren't reliable, uh, use of toxic psychology, misrepresentation of figures, uh, suppression of safe yeah. alternatives, plus a ha hazard, and we'd say grossly negligent, rollout of the vaccine and um, so we went in on 20 we were given a prime reference number and we, we were also given uh, um, a dropbox facility or a box upload center to upload documents so as far as we were concerned uh, the met police were investigating um, the Met Police said, uh, say, says that uh, two months ago that, uh, that, that an assessment of all the available evidence, uh, it's clear that no criminal offenses are apparent, that the Metropolitan Police will not be launching a criminal investigation and no further action will be taken in relation to the allegations. I mean, can you give yeah. me a response? Yeah, I, 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 so I, I won't say too much other than the press release issued by the Met didn't capture what the crime reference number captured, which was a whole gamut of alleged criminality from testing through to uh, haphazard and we'd say grossly negligent vaccine rollout and all points in between. It just focused on the vaccine. And that that wasn't the, just that wasn't the only crime that was alleged. It was a bigger crime. So the Met Police issued a, in, in my view, a misleading statement saying that they'd looked into allegations of suppression of information on the vaccine and said there were no crimes committed, but the criminal complaint was far wider than that. So where, where we are at the moment is in a rather unhappy situation of, we've complained to the, I think it's the independent office or ombudsman for police complaints about uh, the police's 
failure to look into this properly. And my own analysis of the situation is that the police we were interacting with did want to investigate it, but the police at the head of the organisation didn't um, and squashed it. That's my own reading of the situation. Um, So uh, we've now got a complaint in with the office that regulates uh, police um, about the failure to investigate. But the police, the Met Police were giving us mixed messages because when we went, we went in to see them on December the 20th, January the 28th and February the 12th off the top of my head. And uh, on those two occasions, February, uh, January the 28th, we took in a witness who's a very experienced journalist, actually. Uh, she around in 9-11. But she'd also used HCQ for the last 15 years for a chronic condition she had. And what, what we went into the police on the 28th of January, I've got the dates right, was this, that the Horby recovery trial uh, used 2,400 NG, a standard of care, um, on that trial. And our witness said that as a frequent user of HCQ, if you've given her 2,400 mg, she would have been hospitalised because the standard dosage is between 200 and 400. Yet patients on this trial were given within the first 24 hours a dosage of 2,400. And of course, the trial was abandoned because it was killing too many patients. But that's not surprising if you're giving eight to ten times the normal dose. And not only that, but we did have evidence that uh, the two principal investigators on that trial had been warned that 2,400 NG in the trial protocol uh, was too much of a dose. And I think they were also warned that the optimal time for using HCQ and zinc is at the early onset of the disease, not when the disease has progressed. So that we, we, our allegation was that the trial was fatally flawed by dosing the patients at the wrong stage of the disease when their organs were inflamed and it's an anti-inflammatory, and also dosing at the wrong level. We brought along the witness um, and the police took all the details. We'd also given her, given the police Tess Lawrence evidence relating to ivermectin and her exchanges with, I think it's Andrew Hill that you probably get in the video. And we just said, isn't it a coincidence that two main competitors, if you like, uh, HCQ and zinc and ivermectin were both not recommended but look as though they were set up to fail, given the trial protocol of HCQ and zinc, 
and given what Professor Hill said to Tess Worry, where he's alleged to have said, I've seen the video, something like he came under pressure from the sponsors. And when I looked at it, both the HCQ trial and the ivermectin non-recommendation both had sponsors in common indirectly, which was the Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Of course, that foundation virus uh, trustees stood to benefit from vaccination because Bill Gates is on record as saying that he looks for 20 return, 20-fold return on vaccine investments. Yet his foundation appeared to be indirectly or directly influencing the outcome of competitors to vaccination. So um, to a neutral like myself, there did seem something there for the police to investigate as to whether private money with a vested interest had influenced the outcome of knocking out HCQ and ivermectin um, to the detriment of public health. Because it, it, even if you think ivermectin is horse dewormer and HCQ is harmful, um, uh, consumers, patients, citizens, individuals, in my view, should have been able to have a choice between these medicines over here, which have been around for since 94 and 1968, or this new shiny vaccine with a novel experimental mode of action. Um, and, and that's part of the informed consent process, whereby individuals should be offered um, or should have a discussion about what alternatives there are to the treatment on offer. But I think the same has happened in Canada and America and all around the world. Um, a lot of people haven't been allowed access to HCQ and haven't been allowed access to IBM. And I think, or ivermectin, and I think in South Africa and certainly in America, there have been court cases where the courts have ordered ivermectin to be used and people have literally got off their ICU beds. And I think there's some countries in Europe, I think maybe Slovenia or the Czech Republic, that use ivermectin. And when I discussed this with Tess Laurie, she said, have a look at the data in Peru where they used ivermectin up until... I think October, November 21, that's a great effect. Anita Pradesh, yet in Peru, when the president changed, they went on a vaccine rollout, which didn't prove successful. So um, I think what this illustrates uh, to a lay person like myself is that if you give the big pharmaceutical companies the right to set their own exam, mark their own exam, moderate their own exam, and tell the regulator that they pass the exam, uh, you're really relying on the good faith of big pharma companies to be honest and reliable 
in their recording data. But I, I think if you certainly look at one company, they've got quite a big criminal record. So, um, yeah, I've sidetracked a little bit. So we, we went into Met Police on the 28th January just to go through the suppressed alternatives. Then I think on the 12th of February, thereabouts, um, we went into the police because uh, via Tess Laurie, um, we got a vial or deal, how do you pronounce it, of vaccine. I think it was Pfizer and AstraZeneca, I think it's Pfizer, um, analysed and it had um, uh, it, it had substances in that weren't on the packaging, um, uh, and which tied in with results from Almeria University and, uh, and other places in Spain. Uh, graphene, I, I think it was graphene oxide or something like that, uh, in the vaccine. So we took that down to the place. And when we took that down to the police, they said on their database, they've got over 70 pages of notes and investigations. Yet about a week later, they said um, that there was no further action and no crimes were being committed. Well, you said you took a batch of it to a lab and then had it analyzed and then... then uh, yeah, it, it, it wasn't me, it was Dr. Tess Laurie, but um, we were involved at the periphery um, of that with Dr. White. Uh, so we got the batch analyzed and it, and it had um, graphene uh, in from memory, graphene, not, I'm not a scientific uh, brain, but it, it had substances in there that weren't on the label. So we took that to the police and we, we also sent it to MI5, which is our military intelligence and also actually a former agent of MI5 also handed it into military intelligence as well or emailed it in. Um, and what we understand, I've got no way of corroborating, is that there's a certain faction within the MI5 that is quite sympathetic to those citizens who are saying that the COVID response has been, at best, a criminally negligent uh, overreaction and, at worst, a deliberate operation to almost mislead the public as to the severity of the uh, illness uh, in order to get them to take the vaccine and roll out a political agenda of vaccine cards. Okay, so, well, I'm just wondering, there's been a lot of fact checks in the mainstream media. And yeah. they, they, they say that uh, it's not proven that there's, there's graphene, uh, that that's a mythology. And also talking about uh, the fact that just because you have a get a, a crime number doesn't necessarily mean they're investigating it all. I mean, well, what do you say to that? Uh, uh, okay, so on, on the fact checks, um, the fact checks are uh, basically around uh, run by large companies who've got associations with um, 
uh, big business and with the WEF. But um, when you look at the Kenyan Catholic doctors in 2015, they took a sample of, I can't remember what the vaccine was, and got it analysed. And they said that had anti-fertility um, substances in. Of course, that got fact-checked at the time. And uh, excuse me, yeah, I don't know if you've got this expression in Canada, but it was poo-pooed by the fact-checker. It was a load of rubbish. Of course, it hasn't got anti-fertility substances in. But what, the last time I looked, um, uh, there, there was an issue with women's fertility in Kenya. Um, and I think about 900,000 women were infertile. So um, you, you have, I, I, I think that's a problem. Throughout SARS-CoV, uh, everyone is looking for reliable information um, because you've got the mainstream media uh, put out, in my view, not strictly balanced version of events. And then you've got the independent media, which puts out uh, probably a more balanced version of events. And then you've got the fact checkers in the middle acting as referee. Um, and I know, having been fact checked myself, by full fact, uh, but when they fact-checked me, um, some of what they said was factually wrong. So they said that we'd gone into the police station and handed in a large number of documents on the 20th of December. That is factually incorrect, but if you go to full fact, that's what happened, but I was there. So, full fact, I'll deny my lived experience, which is we went in and all we handed them was a sheet of paper with a list of expert witnesses, everyone from Professor Bakhti, um, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Ardis, Dr. Pierre Corrie, um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. All these people had agreed to be witnesses to the police. We handed them one sheet of paper. So how can that be hundreds of pages of documents? But if you go to the fact checkers, that is the factual record. But that factual record doesn't align with what happened. Um, and when we went to Hammersmith Police on the 20th, they actually told us, don't bring in any documents because CID will lose them. So that's why they gave us a document upload facility, which by the way, is still open. So. Um, you're right, uh, fact-checkers, um, referee, factual disputes, but uh, with any referee, with any, whatever uh, the referee is refereeing, people on, who are being refereed also always going to say the referee's biased. Um, that, that, that's almost the nature of refereeing in that... Um, if you've got opposing views and fact check comes down on one side, the other side is going to say they're biased. So I, I don't set too much store with um, fact checkers 
in relation to the police saying they weren't investigating, well, that, that doesn't tally with my lived experience because on the 20th of December, we were told that they would investigate. Mark Sexton went in on the 5th of January and was told that they're investigating. It's a large investigation that they need outside resources. 28th of January, I went in with others who were told they were investigating. 12th of February, we went in and they said they were investigating. And then it was either the 14th of February or the 22nd of February. The Met said they weren't investigating the suppression of information on vaccine safety. That, to me, narrowed down what the crime we alleged and was itself misleading. So um, my own analysis is that the top police didn't want to investigate and the people we were talking to did see that their grounds to investigate. So Yeah, well, it sounds yeah. like an interesting... Uh as opposed to just bringing into a typical court uh, case, let a, a judge decide. But uh, I think we're at the end of our time, Mr. Highland. Thank you okay. so much for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Uh, thanks again. Okay, no problem. Thank you very much. <laughs> My guest is uh-huh. Philip Highland, a lawyer in London, uh, speaking on his case against the UK government. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Given the extreme sensitivity among our listenership around the topic of vaccination as the cure for COVID, a lot of concern has been expressed in the past about criticizing an opposition to the main narrative without a rebuttal from the other side. So we feel obligated to pass these views to someone who could contradict a lot of what you just heard. So I introduce you now to Dr. Peter Hotez. Defending the safety and efficacy of the COVID vaccine and vaccines generally, we would now like to welcome to the program Dr. Peter Hotez. He serves as founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, Professor of Pediatrics and Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he's also director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development and uh, and Texas General Children's Hospital Endowed Chair in Tropical Pediatrics and University Professor of biology at Baylor College of Medicine. He's done several media interviews on the question of the safety of the COVID vaccines and has an entire website devoted to combating anti-vax aggression in the United States. Uh, Last year, he published the book, Preventing the Next Pandemic, Vaccine Diplomacy in a Time of Anti-Science. And the year before, he published Poverty and the Impact of COVID-19, the Blue Marble Health Approach. So uh, good afternoon, Dr. Hotez. I really appreciate having you on. Welcome. Oh, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. Uh, I suppose to start off, I should mention that you yourself had two vaccines and a booster, you mask up, and yet you yourself were sick with COVID-19. I mean, how are you feeling these days? Yeah, well, thanks. So that's right. I'm a vaccine scientist. In fact, we've developed our own recombinant protein COVID vaccine that's now been administered in 53 million doses uh, in India. So we're very excited about that. And 
but uh, and I'm a I'm a, so I'm a vaccine scientist, but also a staunch vaccine advocate. And I was uh, fully vaccinated with uh, the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine mRNA. And then got two boosters, and then I had breakthrough uh, infection um, and did pretty well. I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of my course of illness, it was a mild illness, but uh, I was definitely having, you know, the congestion and headache and feeling crummy and I tested positive, uh, but, but handled it overall pretty well, which I ascribed to getting vaccinated and boosted or doubly boosted. I, it did mitigate the severity of infection, but I think with this new BA212 subvariant, um, it's quite different from the original lineage. So it is escaping in terms of causing breakthrough infection. But again, if you're vaccinated and boosted, it's having a big impact on keeping you out of the hospital or keeping you out of the emergency room. Okay. Um, yeah, that's not the result most people expected when they were told the vaccine would make them invincible. You know, people who are vaccinated transmit the disease and, and they're infected by the disease this is not not like vaccinations against measles or smallpox or, or shingles. So, so to the layman, how would you explain that this vaccine even works when so many people are still getting sick? Well, remember, a lot of vaccines have the don't always prevent infection, but they reduce severity. That's what often happens with uh, influenza vaccines. So there's actually quite a bit of there's a lot of precedent for breakthrough infections. Uh, even after getting vaccinated, but the idea is it has a big impact on reducing uh, illness. The, the way it works with COVID-19 was as follows. The vaccines were approved in the United States, and I, I believe Canada as well, on the basis of reducing symptomatic illness. It was um, uh, The tests were not necessarily uh, done to look for preventing infection. It was to prevent symptomatic illness. And then it came to light from studies uh, in Israel, actually, that the vaccines also were having the added benefit of reducing the amount, if you did get breakthrough infection, reducing the amount of virus shedding. So it was not only reducing symptomatic illness, but also having some impact on infection and transmission as well. But then as the new variants came in, the first the alpha, then the delta, then the Omicron, and now the BA212, and now the BA4 variants, they were still, the vaccines were still holding up pretty well against severe illness, even symptomatic illness, but they were not doing as well in terms of breakthrough infection. However, in terms of transmissal, I think the fact that you're vaccinated does have a big impact because it is reducing virus shedding. So if you're vaccinated and you do get breakthrough infection, I still think it's holding up in terms of reducing levels of transmission. So there's, uh, there's a gazillion reasons to get vaccinated um, still, even though there are, we are seeing some breakthrough infection. Mm. There have been efforts around the world to, to prohibit the use of the vaccine, arguing that it's it is not safe or effective, you know, contrary to what you've said. I mean, my previous guest, UK lawyer, uh, Phil Hyland, points to data. You know, there are the VARES numbers that show that the vast majority of the injuries and deaths uh, connected with the shot were from the COVID vaccines, okay? Above everything going back yeah, to- Yeah, so, so that, of course, is nonsense. And, and it's, it's, it's misunderstanding of how the VARES system works. And in some cases- 
uh, I have no idea who this individual you mentioned is, but there are some individuals who, who actually weaponized that information to spread disinformation. So the VAERS reporting system, um, first of all, it's not the only, in the United States, we have about four or five parallel systems of vaccine safety monitoring. VAERS is just one of them. And VAERS is it's known as a passive reporting system where any, anything that happens after you get vaccinated, you can report into the VAERS system. So if you get vaccinated and you you know, walk across the street and get hit by a car, you can report that into the VAERS reporting system. It doesn't mean it's related to the vaccine. And it's set up that way to be very sensitive to pick up any rare adverse effects. So for instance, for the rotavirus vaccine, the first one, it actually picked up these very rare cases of intussusception, just like with the mRNA vaccines, it's picking up very rare uh, uh, instances of myocarditis. And, but, you know, after you look at what's on VAERS, then that's just the first step. Then you have to sort out whether what's reported in VAERS is actually related to the vaccinations. And that's what people who quote VAERS in that way often omit is that they don't actually talk about the true association. So at this point, we are not seeing links between deaths um, from the COVID vaccine, whereas we're seeing a lot of deaths related to uh, ac actual uh, COVID. And I think that's very important. The VAERS system is set up to detect rare, rare adverse events, but um, it's very important that you look at that in the context of, of the things that are reported that are actually related to the vaccine. Yeah, I, I understand what, <clears throat> about what you're saying, but I mean, one thing that irks me a little bit is that uh, somebody who uh, was discovered to have contracted uh, the uh, the COVID, uh, the, the SARS-CoV-2, uh, if, if it dies within 28 hours, they are assumed to be have died from COVID. Yet what you seem to be saying is if somebody uh, died in relation to the, the, the COVID shot, well, it doesn't necessarily the shot. I mean, it could have been this, could have been, like you say, somebody- Well, it needs to be- in I mean, it's a different it, standard there, you know what I mean? No, I don't think so. I think it, it, the, the point is all, all we're saying is that, you know, the VAERS is a, is a it's kind of a blunt instrument to pick up everything that could potentially be related. And then you do the investigation to find out what's causally related. And and, and by the way, it's a pretty robust system um, that we have in the United States. And I think it's similar in Canada where, you know, you have this parallel system, because again, VAERS is not the only safety reporting system. So by having that parallel system, you can actually figure out what's related and what's not. And it works, right? I mean, because the VAERS and, and together with the other parallel systems like vaccine safety data link and others were able to identify the rare myocarditis association and was also for the adenovirus vectored vaccines like J&J were able to identify the rare uh, um, thrombotic thrombocytopenia events. So it's, so it is a robust system and people, you know, I, I think the, the, my, my way of looking at this is I'm grateful that the system is in place because it's probably one of the most robust systems for vaccine safety the world has ever seen. And, and the proof of concept is that it is able to pick up those rare events, which are then reported to the public. Mm. Yeah, so, so you, you don't see that, uh, let's say they, 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 like she said, that the, the number of incidents of, of myocarditis and pericarditis are, are elevated. But I mean, you're saying that's because of the COVID and not because of the, the vaccine? No, no, I, in fact, I just said twice that 
um, that myocarditis is a known rare side effect of, of getting vaccinated. Um, the, you know, the numbers fluctuate a little bit, but the last numbers I've seen, so if you get the COVID vaccine, about one in 10,000 uh, cases of uh, myocarditis after getting the mRNA vaccine, as opposed to the, the myocarditis and other heart disease that you get from actual COVID. So the rates of myocarditis, in fact, I wrote an article uh, about this um, with Dr. Buzkurt, who's a, a cardiologist here at Baylor College of Medicine, very distinguished cardiology researcher, that the rates of myocarditis from actually getting the virus, not the vaccine, are, are much higher than from the vaccine by far. And not myocarditis is not the only issue that you get if you get COVID-19, the virus. You also get thrombotic heart disease, a myocardial infarction. You're getting thromboforming that lead to strokes. COVID-19 is a bad, you know, we, in the beginning, we thought of it as a respiratory virus, but in fact, it's a pretty bad actor in terms of cardiovascular disease. So hence the reason why we vaccinate against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, they also uh, officially cited 40 experts in, in the fields of, of uh, medicine and uh, you know, infectious disease and other things, as well as victims reports that, that relate these symptoms to the, that there have been these you know, tragic incidents related to the vaccine. I mean, does that, is that something that, sh- that should give you pause at all? Well, what gives me pause is the fact that there are rare, serious side effects of, of these vaccines, like many vaccines. And, and that's why we have this very detailed system of safety reporting. So the good news is that um, if, if you know, you're one of those unfortunate one in 10,000 to get myocarditis as a consequence of the vaccine, Remember that most of those do pretty well. Um, they seem to be short-term hospitalizations. I'm not dismiss, dismissing the importance of it, but it pales in comparison to the devastating uh, cardiovascular disease you get from COVID, the virus. And, and remember the, the, the consequences of overplaying the severity of the vaccine. You know, here in the United States, since May 1, Michael, since May, May 1, 2021, um, millions of Americans have refused to get vaccinated because of weaponized health and science communication, like like your um, reporting from from in guests that you've had in the past, and and the consequence by refusing to get vaccinated has been devastating. Here are the numbers, Michael. Here are the real numbers: two hundred thousand unvaccinated Americans since May one, twenty twenty one, have lost their lives needlessly because they refused to take a COVID vaccine. They lost their lives because of vaccine refusal. And, and that has been devastating. So, um, you know, anti-vaccine activism, anti-science aggression is now a leading killer of young and middle-aged Americans in the United States. And, and that's how, that's how far things have gone. Well, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, in terms of adverse effects, and I mean, you, I guess you're, you're denying it, but it just seems to me that if uh, there were, if, if, if you had a, a regular pharmaceutical on, on the shelf, not, not a vaccine, but something else, and, and they had these sorts of vaccine uh, effects that the, these experts 
uh, claim they have, well, well, they would no, be pulled I mean, off the shelf right away, would they not? Well, no, because I mean the the true ad- severe adverse effects of either the either of the COVID vaccines in the U.S. are quite rare, as opposed to you know if you've ever by the way if you ever turn on a television and listen to the incessant pharmaceutical advertisements, which I find annoying as all heck. Uh, but, you know, the half the commercial is the list of serious side effects of the medication, as anyone knows. So, um, in fact, the level, the safety profile of vaccines far exceeds just about any other pharmaceutical that, that people take. And, and for a very good reason, because with a vaccine, you're generally giving it to uh, a well individual to prevent them from getting sick. So the safety bar is so much higher for a vaccine relative to any other pharmaceutical. Well, let's see that there were, uh, they were looking for therapeutic treatments uh, as opposed to the vaccine. Okay. I mean, I'm okay. You're, you're fine to have the vaccine, but what, what about the search for other sorts of treatments? For example, ivermectin and HCQ zinc, uh, they, they have such safety profiles dating back to 1994 and 1968, respectively, and yet entities such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have a financial interest in the vaccine and, and therefore a financial interest in disqualifying therapeutics like that. And, and it seems that a number of steps have been taken, including... So, so let, me, let me explain a little bit sure, why sure. what you said is not true, right? And it's really misinformation. Um, um, first of all, uh, let's, let's take the case of ivermectin. By the way, I'm probably responsible for the treatment of more individuals with ivermectin than anyone you'll ever interview, because I advocated for mass treatment of ivermectin for a parasite, because I'm also an expert in parasitic infections for a disease called river blindness, which is uh, predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa, it's caused by a parasite. So because of my advocacy, millions of people have gotten ivermectin on an annual basis to help reduce the prevalence of uh, river blindness. So I know a fair amount about ivermectin, as well as for lymphatic filariasis and scabies. These are important medications for parasitic infection. The problem with it for COVID-19 is it doesn't work. And this has been shown in multiple randomized clinical trials. So even though you're right, ivermectin does have a good safety profile. And thank goodness for that, because it's been, we've been, it's allowed us to use it successfully for treatment of river blindness. It simply does not work for COVID-19, just like hydroxychloroquine does not work for COVID-19. There are medicines that um, have been developed that seem to have um, good antiviral effects, and one of them is is Paxlovid, um, um, which you know if you're unfortunate enough to have breakthrough infection, or or if you have the virus, if you get treated early enough, and that's the key, it, it limits virus replication. But you have to get to tre- But the problem with those antiviral medicines like Paxlovid is you've got to get it super early because once the virus is multiplying for a few days, it triggers inflammatory responses that can lead to severe illness. Mm. You not see the idea. I mean, I understand what you're saying about the science behind it. I mean, you've been doing it for 40 years, right? Really professionally. Right. Uh, but another factor, it seems to me, is that the financial, the, uh, the pharmaceuticals and as, as private entities, uh, that private sector entities, and they have an impulse 
to make as much money as, as well, possible. Well, but look, I mean, Merkin companies, so the Merkin, Merkin, well, no, but, but she, she's having it sort of a little bit backwards because, for instance, Merkin Company, which is the major producer of ivermectin, which they actually donate free of charge um, for purposes of uh, treating uh, river blindness. In fact, the, the, the trade name for ivermectin is Mectazan, and they created the Mectazan uh, donation program back in the, in the 1990s and have donated millions of doses. If, Pfizer, if Merkin Company wanted to make money on ivermectin, for COVID-19, they could have done pretty well um, if they wanted to, but they came out and said their own scientists showed no evidence for effectiveness for uh, ivermectin against COVID-19. So they actually you know, gave up an opportunity to make money off, off of ivermectin, just to kind of put things in perspective. Mm. Um, I, just uh, There was a, a frightening message recently. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of it by now. Um, uh, it was a message from uh, Naomi Wolf of the Daily Clout in America, looking into the Pfizer documents that were revealed through a, a freedom of information request. Okay, this is information you were trying to keep from the public. And it essentially stated that Pfizer knew about the impacts on people. I mean, she went over thousands of documents. So she had a, a crew of roughly 300 you know, professional individuals and, and found that Pfizer knew about the vaccine's failure and waning efficacy one month after it was released. There were 35 minors who got heart damage a week after getting the shot. They knew that after 48 hours after receiving the injection, the mRNA lipid nanoparticles, uh, polyethylene glycol escaped the, the, the deltoid uh, you know, uh, injection site and, and moved to other spots like the liver, the spleen, and then the women, the ovaries. And they knew about the statistically significant effects on pregnant women with spontaneous uh, abortions, miscarriages, and so on. No, again, again. Some able-brained Again, no, no, this was careful. No, it's, it's not the case. This was carefully reviewed by the Food and Drug Administration, again, which has an extraordinary uh, track record of monitoring for safety and efficacy. They looked at the clinical trial data for, I think it was, I forget which one was 44,000, I think it was 44, 60,000 patients in the Pfizer study, which is a pretty large study, did not find those uh, adverse effects. And in fact, there's now it's been well documented, there is no link between um, uh, mRNA vaccines and infertility or miscarriages. But I'll tell you what, there is a big link for COVID-19 and pregnant women. We've lost many, many pregnant women to COVID-19 who did not get vaccinated, again, because of some of this weaponized communication that you're citing. Um, and COVID-19 is a bad actor during pregnancy. So the bottom line is, if you're pregnant, get vaccinated against COVID. You know, pregnant women do not do well with, with virus infections in general, um, both influenza. And, and so that's why we recommend influenza vaccination in pregnant women and why we recommend uh, COVID-19 vaccinations. All you need to go is to an intensive care unit during a COVID epidemic. And you're seeing far too many pregnant women losing their lives and, and, and having ICU admissions because of COVID-19 or losing their baby from COVID-19 because they did not get vaccinated. Wow. Well, I don't know. I mean, it seems like the uh, 
they, they, they've even made a distinction between people who have been like vaccinated up to, uh, you know, a couple of times and people who are unvaccinated. And those people are more, more vulnerable to, to COVID-19 than like some, I, I can't remember the figure, but 3.5 or something per 100,000 versus 1.5. No, no, it's, it's just, that's just nonsense. And, you know, it's, you have to be really careful where you're getting your sources of, of information from. Remember, there's a lot of groups out there um, that are spreading misinformation on the internet and, and some of those, uh, I don't know any, can't name any specifics right now, but some of those individuals are monetizing the internet, selling advertising, selling fake books on Amazon. It's become a whole industry. So you have to be really careful where you're getting your uh, COVID information from. Well, public health of uh, Scotland, but look, I, I, I can see where, where your profession on the one hand is, is, is driven by, by science and, and doing adequate work. And, and, and I, I take that as a given, but th this pharmaceutical company's uh, influence is so large that it essentially could uh, take over the regulators. Okay. I mean, just like, how would we know if the pharmaceutical markets, I mean, okay. Yeah, maybe I mean, I, you know, I'm no, big, I'm now, no, but later I'm, on, I'm uh, no big, you know, I'm no big fan of the big pharma companies. Remember we made our COVID vaccine independent of the pharma companies because of, you know, we, we, we're doing this trying to show that there's an alternative way of, of doing this and by working and through our nonprofit and our product development partnership at an academic health center, we've partnered with a vaccine producer in India and have made the lowest cost. And I think one of the safest vaccines out there for COVID-19. Um, uh, and it's, and, but it doesn't mean that you at the same time as a result of that, have to demonize the pharma company. So I think, you know, pharma companies do what pharma companies do, and they're they're certainly not perfect. But um, you know, they they um, have to abide by the regulatory authorities just like anybody else. And the track record of producing safe vaccines is pretty good. I think one one final point I have to make though is that uh, I mean you 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 know saying like so the anti-vax groups I mean they 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 tend to be driven by lies I, I know you wrote a book uh, you you yourself were the father of an autistic doctor and you pretty much daughter daughter yeah 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 and you dismissed the whole vaccine and related to autism but That's I, correct. I wanted I wanted to point out that there are a substantial number of people like people that I've talked to who don't prove of this vaccine but they do still take they're not anti-vaccine across the board they they will they'll even take all the the, the even the flu vaccine and That's right. No, I think you're right. I think vaccine. you're right. But but remember the consequences and I just keep going back to this. This is not some sort of abstract theoretical discussion. When we, when groups, and I'm not accusing you of it, but um, some of the individuals, you know, one of the groups uh, that that you cited, you know, when some individuals weaponized health communication and say things that are not true about vaccine, it has consequences. And we've had, you know, as I say, 200,000 unvaccinated Americans lose their lives because they refused to get a COVID vaccine, and that's the number you really need to keep a focus on because people are losing their lives because of unwarranted concerns about COVID-19 vaccines. So that's why it's really important to be very careful and really important 
to uh, look at where the sources of information that you're citing are coming from. I'm, I'm not, you know, going to cast aspersions on any one specific individuals or groups that you spoke about today. I mean, they do what they do, but be really careful where you get your information from. For sure. Dr. Hotez, I've, I've really appreciated having the chance to discuss these issues with you. I thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Wishing you all the best in Winnipeg, where I have some family, by the way. So. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Dr. Peter, H Peter Hotez is co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital and the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. That was two different sides of the debate about the issue of the COVID vaccines and the merits of investigating the safety and efficacy around it. We'd like to close with a vox populi from the streets of downtown Winnipeg, Manitoba, on the utility of a criminal investigation into the approach to COVID over the last two years. How valuable do you think this uh, investigation would be to the public? Not valuable at all. Not at all. No. The, the people who I know that took all the, the vaccines and the other things, and they had COVID, the same as me. <laughs> And I didn't take nothing. But I had a friend double vaxxed. Before then, no psoriatic arthritis. Afterwards, bada bing, it was a dormant condition. He's not too happy. Some days he can't get out of bed. Before the vaccinations, he was fine. Me, I'm unvaxxed, but I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I believe smoke him if you got him, but don't tell me what to do. My own personal choice should be theirs too. It's protected more than, the, than it's going to harm everybody. The percentage of people to get harmed by vaccines on a normal time would be probably more than this particular vaccine. So it all depends on the individual. If you've had past experiences of like, you know, Guillain-Barre syndrome or something like that, but even those people, and if they've done testing and it's good for like young children now, I think the risk is small compared to where the risks to the general population of the elderly. Uh, well, I feel that it probably would be quite valuable because there's a lot of people that are concerned uh, that have taken vaccines, right? So as far as uh, knowing, uh, it's always beneficial to have some sort of investigation uh, if, if there's concern. For me, just an average Canadian, I'm not as worried right now, although obviously vaccines are somewhat the same from country to country. So I think it's a waste of money. My wife is a public health nurse, uh, so we believe in science. We don't believe in anything other than that. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us. Global Research News Hour.